Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your word, and we ask, Father, that your spirit will touch our hearts, that we may be those who hear, who trust, who obey what you say. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, uh, greetings uh, from Focus, our church, uh, the overseas church in New South Wales Uni, uh, called Focus. And a thank you again for inviting me here to speak. Uh, SMAC has a great reputation amongst us of being a very vibrant, evangelical church here in KL. But you are dead. You're dead. You begin to feel the shock of that statement, don't you? Who is this speaker? Who does he think he is? They will come around and say that we are dead. We won't be inviting him back in a hurry. There are alive churches out there, aren't there? Big churches. Churches with big budgets. Churches with big websites. Churches with big buildings that we know actually are spiritually dead. But friends, remember the Chinese proverb, if you point a finger at someone else, there's always three fingers pointing back at yourself. What about here in Smack? Pretty big church, pretty well known. Here in the centre of the city, on prime property, are we spiritually dead? What about our church back in Sydney? Uh, Call Focus, uh, getting bigger. The label focus has been taken by other university groups all around the country. It's a national sort of brand name now. But are we spiritually dead? Chapter 3, verse 1 here in Revelation. Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Who is this speaker? Who is saying this to this church in Sardis that they are dead? In verse 1, it is Jesus, isn't it? We've seen this figure, this figure who has the seven spirits of God, this figure that holds the seven stars in his right hand. We saw him in chapter 1. He was the majestic, glorious, risen Jesus. The one who holds the seven stars, the seven messengers, the seven angels in his hand. Perhaps angelic beings, perhaps a way of just talking about those who are preachers, pastors in these churches. The one who has the seven spirits of God. Seven for the idea of complete. He is the one who has the Holy Spirit of God. Elsewhere in Revelation... The seven spirits are very closely united to the throne of God. He is God himself ruling with Jesus, with his spirit. Have a look on the screen in chapter 5 and verse 6. Remember Jesus, risen Jesus, the lamb of God. Jesus, the one who is a very strange lamb, a lamb with seven horns, mighty, powerful, But notice there in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, that this lamb who has seven horns also has these seven eyes. 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. One of my overseas student friends uh, from Indonesia, when he was in Sydney, his uh, family really trusted him and his uh, siblings about how they would conduct themselves overseas as overseas students. For there in their lounge room, the family had set up this camera. This camera that would see all that their children would do. The parents back in Indonesia could always see what's happening way over there in Sydney. More than that, this camera was remotely controlled from Indonesia. (laughs) Friends, does God need a camera? to see into our lives? Does he need a remote control? No, no. There is the seven spirits of God, the complete spirit of God, the eyes that go into all the world that know us. And that's why Jesus, who has these seven spirits, can say, in verse 1, I know. I know what you're like. He's not going to be fooled by our external piety. He's not going to be fooled by the facade of religion. He knows. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There's no hiding from God here, is there? No fooling him by just being respectable. He knows. He knows what we're really like inside. And the church addressed here in Sardis, inside, was actually dead. They were in its death throes, as you see in point two of the outline. Not completely dead, but almost. In its last thread of life, in its last breath. Almost the breath has run out and... Maybe just the last faint pulse is there. Almost dead. And yet there is still some hope. Uh, Verse 2 says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's still some hope, but not much hope on its last thread of life. I wonder if you can imagine yourself as they do on TV, the relatives around the hospital bed as their loved one is is dying. And then suddenly the the alarms bell go, the doctors and nurses rush in, and you as the relatives are pushed out, and the curtains come around. And you hear that beep as your relative flatlines. And you hear the charge of the paddles being charged up, and then a doctor saying, clear. And then, and you wonder on the outside, whether this person is going to make it. Is this church Sardis going to make it? The last threads of life. Well, what was the demise? What was the sickness? What was wrong with this church? Jesus says, your works, I've found your works incomplete. I have not found your works complete. In the sight of our God, verse 2. Hard to know what exactly this is, but there's some hints here, isn't there? Your works, that is how you live out your life. What you actually are doing. 
Notice it's in the sight of God. Jesus says, verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. It's not just what other people think, not what society thinks, not what Reverend Andrew Cheer thinks. It is what God thinks here that is important. Your works are incomplete in the sight of God. And it's Jesus who's discovered this. What are these incomplete works? It has got something to do with Jesus, isn't it? Something to do with God, something to do with the reality of who they are before God that's expressed in, in their works, in their outward life. It's whether Jesus, I think, is really their Lord, whether Jesus is actually the centre or whether they're just, you know, trying to just get by, a bit of religion, a bit of Sunday going to church, but really don't really care. My son, Jordan, he's in Sec 3 now, middle of high school, and the other week we had a parent-teacher discussion with all his parents, us the parent and the teachers, and we uh, fronted up to uh, this uh, elderly man who was his uh, D&T, design and technology teacher. And uh, there's my wife, Karen, myself sitting there. Uh, Jordan wasn't there at the time. And uh, he said, well, you know, Jordan's doing okay, but, you know, in his homework for design and technology, he doesn't write much. He just writes sort of one sentence for each question, and that's it. And then... He looked at Karen, my wife, who's Australian. Then he looked at me, and then he asked us, is English your son's first language? (laughs) My son was grown up in Australia, you know? And so I thought of saying something smart like, you mean if he wrote in Mandarin, it would be okay? Um, He is learning a bit of Mandarin, but not much. But I just sort of, I couldn't believe he was saying this. I had... The previous uh, teacher's interview, uh, talked to his religious studies teacher, talked to his English teacher, and they said, oh, he's very good, you know, Jordan's very expressive, you know, writes lots. So we go home and say, well, what's going on in a DNT? And my son Jordan says, oh, it's only DNT. I do the homework in my Chinese class. Just get it done and over with, you know? And I said, oh, all right, because Chinese is your first language, right? That's why you can just get it done quickly. Is that how we treat God? It's not something that's just on the periphery. A subject in my life that I can just, you know, try to get done quickly and get it over and with, and, but really my life is actually about something else. There's a man I know who was in Bible college, and yet his whole life was about living for his pleasure, chasing money, chasing things that would make him feel important in life. Our works complete before our God. Jesus says, chapter 3, verse 2, wake up or else. See, chapter 3, verse 2, wake up. It's a great uh, command in the sermon, isn't it? Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, verse 3, what you've received and heard. Keep it. There's, what does it mean to wake up? It means to 
Go back to the gospel message. Think about it. Keep it. Understand it. Believe it again. It is true that usually uh, one generation recovers the gospel, fights hard for the gospel. Then the second generation assumes the gospel. Doesn't disagree with it, just assumes it, but doesn't really talk about it. And then by then the third generation forgets the gospel and no longer lives by the gospel. Jesus is saying here, if you're in that generation where someone in the past has fought for the gospel, well, don't just assume it. Be someone who remembers it. Be someone who holds on to it. Be someone who acts it out. That's what it means to be those who, whose works would be complete before God. But what does it mean to wake up? What's his response to the gospel message? We'll see it in verse 3. Keep it and repent. That's what it's about. Repentance is about a turning around 180 degrees. You were going one way living for yourself and now you're turning and living for Jesus. Repentance is what the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount is about, isn't it? Where Jesus says, he is true living for me. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there was the great illustration of the man who built his house on the sand and the man who built his house on the rock. They both hear the word of Jesus. What's the difference? The one who built his house on the sand, that house which will be completely destroyed at the second coming, that person hears but does not act upon what Jesus says. Whereas the one who builds on the rock hears and does what the Lord Jesus is. That's what the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is about. Real repentance, not just pretend repentance, real following of Jesus. You see, just because we have an external reputation of being alive is actually no guarantee that we are really genuinely alive. And it's definitely no guarantee that at the second coming, all will be right with God. In fact, look at verse 3 here. It is a guarantee that all will not be right. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it, repent. If you will not wake up, if you will not turn back and repent, I, Jesus says, will come like a thief. And you will not know the hour I will have come against you. A thief comes unexpected, isn't it? If you knew when the thief would come, he wouldn't be successful. No, thieves don't drop in a little card, you know, on SMS on your phone. Oh, by the way, I'm coming in an hour's time. No, it's unexpected. Jesus will come at a time when you will not expect. It could be talking about some way in which he'll come against us, maybe in this life, but if not that, then at least at the second coming, he will come. And notice it's a personal judgment. I will come against you, he says at the end of verse 3. Personal, right judgment from Jesus. That's all happened to those who do not repent. 
Verse 4 tells us a little bit more what it means to have these incomplete works. Verse 4. You still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. So the flip side is, those who have incomplete works are those who have soiled their garments. Sword coving. That's a great imagery of sin, isn't it? Uh, those of you who look after little children, you know what it is, you know. When they have laksa, you start to panic, right? Because their laksa goes all over their white garments and that's soiling, isn't it? These people are those who've soiled their garments and do not even bother to turn back to God. It is about unrepentant sin. Have a look at our Revelation chapter 22 coming up on the screen there. Here's another indication of what these soiled garments are about. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by its gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There is the soiling, isn't it? There is the sin. Sexual immorality is mentioned, murder is mentioned, idolatry is mentioned. But the key of it is in that last little phrase, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, practices lies. This man who was in Bible college, very respectable on the outside, and yet his real life was practicing a lie. He believed the lies. Not only was he chasing wealth and trying to make himself special, he was actually seeing prostitutes. Nobody knew. Nobody except for God. The lie of chasing not just sexual pleasure that is immoral, but chasing materialism, isn't it? It's a lie. That's why... The Bible calls materialism, greed, idolatry. For it is the worship of something as God when really it is not God. People expect to find satisfaction. But because it's an idol, it doesn't deliver. It's a false God. Similarly, in sexual immorality. God created sex. It's good, but Satan distorts God's good gift. So that we believe Satan's lie that this easy sex, this sex outside of marriage is somehow going to satisfy. It's somehow going to be more tantalizing, more, more enduring, more fun. But really, it does not deliver. There is some example of what this soiling is about. Well, who are then are those who will actually be worthy? You see it there in verse 4, yet there's a still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, Jesus says, for they are worthy. What does it mean that they are worthy? Notice here in verse 4 that Jesus can know the few in this church of Sardis 
that have not soiled their clothing. Uh, if you like, there are a few good apples in this bad crate of apples. They haven't soiled it like Revelation 22 talks about. They're those, verse 4, who are worthy. But what does it mean, worthy? It's beginning to sound a bit like salvation by works, isn't it? Remember Paul says, you know, being saved is not about what you do. Right? It's the grace of God, not by works that anyone can boast, Ephesians chapter 2. And yet here it talks about people who are worthy, people who have not soiled their garments. What is it about? Who are these people who have not soiled? Who are these people who are worthy? Or point three, another way to ask the question is, who are the people who can wear Nike in heaven? Or you think, oh, what's this, another... World Cup commercial? What's all this about Nike? Well, let's have a look. Point 3a. See, those who are worthy in verse 3 and 4 are those who wear white. They are wearing white. What does it mean to wear white? Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Clothed in white garments. What's white represent? Most people think it's about purity. And it could be about purity because the verses before talked about not being soiled by, by sin, isn't it? So it could be about purity. But maybe it's something else. Maybe there's more to it. Let's just keep this question in our mind. What does it mean to be worthy? What does it mean to be able to walk in white? Is it about purity? Notice again here in verse 5 that those who have not been soiled by sin, who wearing white, Jesus says at the end of verse 5, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. These are the people in the book of life. The book of life is, those who are in, in the book of life go to heaven. They're the ones in the eternal life. I don't know if you ever uh, wondered where, whether you made the list. Uh, I remember back in the old days at university, I wasn't quite sure whether I'd passed or not. And then you look up the list, your, your, your heart is pounding, isn't it? If you're, if you're not in the list, then maybe you, you definitely have failed. And as you look through and you try to look at your student number, is it on the list? Well, friends, whether we're in the book of life is going to be far more important than whether you pass or fail university. For their head of you is eternity... Eternity either in heaven or eternity in hell, whether you're in the book of life, is going to make the difference. How do you know? What does it mean that you are in the book of life? How can you be sure that you're in the book of life? Well, notice that Jesus says, if your name is in the book of life, then I would never rub out your name. I would never blot out your name. 
It could be a warning, right? Watch out or else I'll scrub out your name. But I think here Jesus is speaking of it as an encouragement. That is, I will not blot out your name. In other words, you will definitely be saved. That once you're in the book of life, you cannot be rubbed out of it. It's like uh, some of you take um, pictures on these digital cameras. And once you take all these pictures, there's a little function there where you can get to the picture and click, click, click. And you can save it, isn't it? Save it so that you can't just accidentally delete it. Well, Jesus saying, I'll make sure I save your name in the book of life. It will will never be deleted. I will not delete it. That's comforting, isn't it? But who are these people who are wearing white, who are in the book of life, who Jesus will confess your name before the Father? Jesus say, you are mine and never let go of you. Who are these people? It doesn't really say here. But it's interesting, these uh, letters or one letter, these seven sections of the one letter to the churches, not only does it look back to Jesus, the speaker, at the beginning of each of these sections, but at the end, he talks about the future. He talks about the end of Revelation. And each of these sections of the letter looks forward to Revelation chapter 20 to 22. For later on in Revelation, it talks about the book of life. And so if we uh, have a look at the slide, uh, chapter 20, verse 15, chapter 20, verse 15, notice that if your name is not in the book of life, then you're actually thrown into the lake of fire. Quite clear, isn't it? There is hell, there is judgment. If your name is not there, if you're not walking in white, then you're going to hell. That's basically what the book of Revelation is saying. Or the next passage at the end of the book of Revelation. Next slide, thank you. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. And the city, uh, talking about Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is Jesus, the Lamb. By its light the nations walk. The kings of the earth will come and bring their glory to it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Notice verse 27. But nothing unclean, nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, to be in the Lamb's Book of Life means... You're not one of those who does what is detestable, what is false. You're someone who is clean. Those who are unclean are on the outside. They don't make it into heaven. They don't make it into the city. It does sound a little bit like salvation by works, doesn't it? What does it mean to be clean, to be white? How do we get into this book of life? Revelation chapter 7 does help us. Coming up on the screen. How are people cleansed? One of the elders addressed John saying, Who are these clothed in white? See, the idea of white clothes? From where have they come? 
And then a very good answer, very Chinese answer, you know, sir, you know, you know, don't ask me, you know. And then he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their clothes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is one of the key fundamental facts of how you get into the book of life, of how you can be white is because Jesus' blood has washed you. When my kids uh, spill laksa onto their white clothes, uh, we have got a book at home called How to Clean Almost Anything. It's a really good little book. So you just look up laksa or curry, right? And then you look up what you do. And from memory, it's about washing it with um, cold water. I think cold water. I think. You better check up the book, right? You don't want to do the wrong thing. And then something about um, uh, something peroxide. You know, it sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? And then you wash it with uh, normal washing powder and things like that. You know what? You follow the steps and the laksa actually is gone. It's clean. It cleans almost anything. Jesus' death does that. No matter how much we've soiled our lives and sinned against God and rejected him, he can wash away all our immorality, all our greed, all our living for this life that is living the lies of Satan. Jesus' death can do that, for he dies in our place. I remember meeting an uh, overseas student straight from China. I was going to say straight off the boat, but he came off the plane, and I said to him, um, hey, uh, have you heard about Jesus? And I expected no, but this man said, yes, I have. All right, how did you hear about Jesus? He said it was in a movie. I thought, oh, it must have been the Jesus movie, you know, back in the uh, 90s. And that that Jesus movie, uh, of course, was translated to Mandarin and stuff like that. I said, was it the Jesus movie? And he said, no, no, it was a cartoon. What? Well, I think he said, I think the name of the cartoon was The Simpsons. Whoa, whoa, how did that happen? And then I thought, oh, yes, you know, the, the Simpsons' neighbor, and Ned, right? He's meant to be a Christian. And maybe in some episode, Ned told him, well, I said, what did you learn in The Simpsons about Christianity? And this man looked straight at me and he said, I learned that Jesus died for my sins. And I thought, hey, preach it, brother Ned, right? But then I asked the man, what do you think it means that Jesus died for my sins? And he said, I don't know. It is the centre of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus' death, his blood given up in sacrifice, his blood actually is for our sins. Why death? Because that's what we were meant to go through. That's the judgment of God. It's hell. Jesus takes on our death, for we were meant to be on the cross, he takes on our death for our sins, because of our sins for us instead of us. Jesus dies on the cross in my place as my substitute. I was meant to be on the cross. I was the one who sinned. Jesus never sinned, and yet he died instead of me. A substitute, a cleansing that works for Jesus then takes away all our sins. And God can accept us again as fully clean. Not because we had not sinned, but because Jesus had paid the price. Cleansed by the blood. That's how you become clean. 
However, I think it's a little bit too simplistic to think that revelation is just saying that Jesus' blood cleanses us and that's exactly what it means to wear white. I think wearing white is a little bit more complex than that. For Come back to Revelation chapter 3. When you just read through it, to be one who is able to wear white, one whose name is in the book of life, it's more than Jesus died for our sins. It does speak here about your works are incomplete. It does have something about how we live, doesn't it? It does talk about waking up and, and, and repenting. It does talk about people who have not soiled their garments. That is, I think white in the book of Revelation is not just about purity. White is a bigger category. White equals victory. You uh, read through a book of Revelation or you do your concordance search or your you know, Bible computer search, search white. And you read everything associated with white and it's about being someone who conquers, someone who's victorious. It's very different from our day and age here, isn't it? You, uh, the white flag is the opposite, isn't it? The white flag is a symbol of surrender. But in the Bible, in the New Testament time, white is the symbol of victory. Uh, England was wearing white, weren't they? Um, you see, this is what Nike is about. Who can wear Nike in heaven? You see, the word for conquer, you see it there? You see it there in verse 5? The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The word conquer, the Greek word, is the word Nikon, from which we get the cameras, Nikon, from which Nike very cleverly named all their products Nike. It is about those who conquer, isn't it? And every commercial you see about Nike is those who win. Who are those who conquer? Who are those in white? Well, it is those who have the blood of Jesus washing their sins. It is that. But it is those who so trust in the blood of Jesus that they have their lives changed, isn't it? Lives change and persistence in living for Jesus who died for them. Now, even these people in the church, even most of this church who had sinned, who had soiled their garments... They can still repent. They weren't dead yet, remember. That if they wake up, if they repent, then they will be those who conquer, those who walk in white. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, given the trials of this world, given the persecution, given the temptations of the world, 
Those who walk in white are those who persist in trusting Jesus as their Lord and Saviour until the end. They're the ones who walk in white. They're the ones who can be Nike, be victorious, be conquerors. And so to wrap up, the challenge point four to us is, are we just alive, alive in terms of our reputation? Or are we those who are Nike, those who actually conquer by the blood of Jesus and by our perseverance in trusting him and his death for us and living it out until the end? There is a great warning here in Revelation 3, 1 to 6, isn't that? It puts before us the big picture of eternity, of heaven and hell, of Jesus confessing our name or Jesus going against us of being in the book of life or out of the book of life, of being in the city of God, Jerusalem, heaven, or being those outside who do not turn back to God, who are those who are evil and persisting in it. Great warnings. Remember the warnings of Revelation chapter 21 coming up on the screen again? Remember that passage which speaks of the city Jerusalem coming on the screen? Remember, yes, the nations come and all the nations, even Australians and Malaysians and everybody come, Chinese, Indians, Caucasians, Africans, everybody comes and comes to the city of God. Verse 24, the nations come and walk. The kings of the earth bring their glory to it. Friends, it's talking about the city of God, not Brazil, right? It's talking about heaven itself. The nations come. Glory is brought. But notice verse 27. Nothing unclean. See, nothing that doesn't conquer. Nothing that is non-white. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Nor anyone who does what is dispestable or false but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then you remember our Old Testament reading. Come to that uh, next slide. A chilling end to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 coming on the screen. Notice the parallel. I think Isaiah 66 lies behind Revelation here. For here in Isaiah 66, it talks about all the nations coming, isn't it? Bringing an offering to God. Notice they come to Jerusalem in verse 20. Notice in verse 22, this is the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's heaven. Notice in verse 23, again, all flesh comes to worship the Lord. Uh, Revelation chapter 65, 66 has a great, brilliant picture of heaven. But then the very, very last verse of Isaiah, that whole big prophecy finishes on verse 24 is a real shocker a real why would Isaiah finish with this for look what it says and they that is those who are in the city those nations that come to worship God those who are in the new heavens and earth those who are saved they shall go out out of the city and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me God says For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. 
depends on this verse about hell. Why such an ending? My grandfather was not a Christian. As a young little uh, teenager, I used to write him letters, you know, saying, uh, Dear Grandad, you're going to hell. Right, you know, very subtle I was. And he would write back, uh, That's very nice, nice to hear from you, right? And he would be very polite in writing back. And I remember he came and visited us all the way to Sydney and stayed with us for a couple of months and we tried to tell him about the gospel but as far as we know, he, he always rejected it, never believed it. And I remember seeing him off at the airport in Sydney and I remember just thinking in my mind, maybe this might be the last time I will see him. Sure enough, a couple of years later, we heard that he had passed away. Not knowing Jesus, not trusting Jesus. But this passage in Isaiah tells me it actually will not be the last time I see him. For Isaiah 66 verse 24 says that even at the second coming, even when I'm in the, the city of God in Jerusalem, I will go out and I'll see those, including my granddad, who have not repented, who have not trusted in Jesus, those who continued in their rebellion against Jesus and God, those who are dead. It's a chilling verse, isn't it? And just like here in Revelation 3, it's a chilling passage about heaven and hell. It's a great warning, isn't it? To make sure that we are those who are in the book of life. It's a great warning of God's judgment. And yet, it is amazing, it is amazing that somehow in heaven, even though I may recognise that my granddad may be in judgment, nevertheless, there will be a rejoicing. A rejoicing that God is king, that Jesus is king. That somehow I would love Jesus' glory, love God's glory, that he has conquered, that he is the king of the universe. That somehow I would love that even more than my loved ones. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. Remember? The great glorious majestic figure, Jesus risen as the king of eternity. He's the one who gives these warnings. He's the ones who gives the encouragements to keep going, to make sure you are in the book of life, to keep going to the end. The question is not whether, hey, Jesus can be on my side. The truth is Jesus is king. 
The question is whether we are on his side or whether we are actually against him. Which one will we be? Notice at the very end in verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Smack may not be Sardis. Smack may not be this church that has just a reputation but no real life. But notice it doesn't really matter. For this letter, this circular letter, is to be read by everyone, isn't it? Whether you're in Sardis or whether you're in one of these other churches, at the end of every bit it keeps on saying, let him hear what the Spirit says, not only to your church, but what the Spirit says to all the churches. Sardis may not be smack, Sardis may be some other church out there, but we got to listen to these warnings and encouragements that come from God's Spirit. Are you and I those who will listen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the word of your Spirit to us this morning. Thank you for the warning of just having a reputation of being Christian. Thank you for the warning that you actually see beyond the facade, beyond the outside, beyond just our claims, beyond just our Sunday bests, that you see into our hearts, our life. We pray, Father, that we must may be those who trust in the blood of the Lamb to cleanse us, that we so trust it that it changes us from the inside, that it will show in our lives, our lives that are changed, real change, so that we live actually for Jesus. We pray for any amongst us who your spirit is actually speaking to, warning them that indeed they are in danger of being dead, even though everybody around thinks that they are alive. We pray that by your spirit they would wake up and repent and turn to Jesus even this morning. We pray for all of us that we might be those who walk in white, who can conquer, who will be those who will be in the city of God, who will rejoice at Jesus being the king. For we know that he has the victory. Victory even over those who will reject him that ultimately those who reject him will be outside where there's gnashing of teeth, where there's eternal fire. We pray, Father, that we might so line ourselves up with Jesus as king that we will love his glory and majesty as the uttermost in our lives both now and in eternity. 
And we pray these things in his name. Amen.